They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. I'm Liz Brunig. This is my husband, Matt. Hi, everyone. We're tuning in from this snowy D.C. Sunday with a special episode for you. It is special. Um, You know, they're all special. They're all special in some way, but this episode, we feel like, pertains directly to the coming 2020 debates. I noticed the other day that uh, Tucker Carlson had picked up on a book uh, that Elizabeth Warren wrote. Oh, did he pick up on it? He did. He did. He, I didn't he's even the notice one who this. kind of injected it back into the discourse, which if you'll remember, I predicted uh, in 2016 when people started talking about an Elizabeth Warren run, I was like, somebody's going to bring up the two income trap. You did say that. You did say that to me privately. I don't know if you said it publicly. I didn't not. say it publicly. I said it privately. Uh, but I thought that this would be a little bit of a, a live wire. Uh, because, you know, there there's uh, several ways you can interpret what's being said here. There's also the question of accuracy. And then there's the issue of the kind of normative claim that's being made here, the prescriptive claim also. Uh, so uh, I thought this would come up. This is a book written by Elizabeth Warren. What year was it? Was it in the 90s? No, no, no. It was in the 2000s. Yeah, it was in the 2000s, 2006, I think. There we go. Um, and, uh, but it was reprinted in 2016 with a new foreword yeah, and all that a new, stuff. A new edition came out. So... Um, uh, the Two Income Trap is a book about uh, the financial situation of middle class Americans that are two income households. The mom and dad both work, basically. That's right. Yes. Well, yes. And it's, a, it's explicitly supposed to be a comparison between dual earner families today versus single earner families of yesteryear. Yeah. And so like uh, Elizabeth Warren says of her generation. Yeah. So it's very much 1970 single earner. 2000 dual earner and that's like an interesting uh, way to approach it because like normally you might say well why wouldn't you compare a 1970 single earner to a 1970 dual earner and likewise a 2000 single earner to a 2000 dual earner wouldn't you just take single and dual earners in each period and compare them why would you compare one to another you know that would so so it's an interesting approach just right at the get-go to kind of you know compare different earner numbers and different uh periods but that's that's the whole point of the book is to say we used to be uh you know a male breadwinner uh woman stay at home and and now we're two 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 earners so let's compare those two ways of being yeah across time so i'm gonna read a quick selection uh from one of the early chapters of the book um that i think gets across the kind of the the several components of the argument all right go ahead By the usual logic, sending a second parent into the workforce should make a family more financially secure, not less. But this reasoning ignores an important fact of two-income life. When mothers joined the workforce, the family gave up something of a considerable, although unrecognized, economic value. 
an extra skilled and dedicated adult available to pitch in to help save the family during times of emergency. When Junior got sick, the stay-at-home mother was there to care for him full-time without the need to hire a nurse. If Dad was laid off, Mom could enter the workforce, bringing in a new income until Dad found another job. And if the couple divorced, the mother who had not been working outside the home could get a job and add a new income to support her children. The stay-at-home mother gave her family a safety net, an all-purpose insurance policy against disaster. If two-income families had saved the second paycheck, they would have built a different kind of safety net, the kind that comes from having plenty of money in the bank. But families don't save that money. Even as millions of mothers marched into the workforce, savings decline, and not, as we will show, because families were frittering away their paychecks on toys for themselves or their children. Instead, families were swept up in a bidding war, competing furiously with one another for their most important possession, a house in a decent school district. As confidence in the school system crumbled, the bidding war for family housing intensified and parents soon found themselves bidding up the price for other opportunities for their kids, such as a slot in a decent preschool or admission to a good college. Mom's extra income fit in perfectly, coming in just at the right time to give each family extra ammunition to compete in the bidding wars and drive the prices even higher for all the things they wanted. The average two-income family earns far more today than did the single breadwinner family of a generation ago. And yet, once they have paid the mortgage, the car payments, the taxes, the health insurance, and the daycare bills, today's dual-income families have less discretionary income and less money to put away for a rainy day than the single-income family of a generation ago. And so the two-income trap has been neatly sprung. That is a good summary of the first few chapters, for sure. I would say the latter chapters of the book kind of go more into, um, I don't know, what I would say more sort of hobby horses, uh, yeah. bankruptcy, and these kinds of things. Which, separate, disparate things. Yeah, yeah. Th- things that she's uh, more known for, I think, because of, that was her, Yeah, that's what she studied at Harvard Law uh, as a faculty member. Yeah. So, I don't know, they felt a little tacked on, but I think the first two or three chapters were more on to that and on to the uh, title of the book. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That, that's, the, that's the thematic summary, I would say. Yeah, and I mean, it's it seems, you know, it seems mostly, it seems like most of the claims are quite, are quite incorrect, um, which is unfortunate in a number of ways. I mean, there's, there are yeah. a lot of issues with it, but, but like if you want to go sort of line by line, yeah. right, the first claim that you went through yeah. is this notion that the stay-at-home mother is a safety net. Right. And, you know, what she says in the book, what she tries to allude to in the book and what she alludes to there is, uh, you know, okay, so you have kind of like a, you have kind of like a spare worker yeah. at the, and not only do they do things in the house, that's not really what she's talking about yeah, when yeah. she's talking about the safety net, but it's like, if the man loses her, his job, she can go out and get a job. Right. Right. She can jump into the workforce. Okay. And so that, hit. that would replace his income. Now, right off the bat, when I saw this claim, I was like, m- my head starts spinning because I'm like, well, <laughs> wait a minute. If she can get a job, why can't he get a job? Why can't he get the yeah, job that she's going to get? I kind of thought about that. Th- that. Women are way more constrained in the 70s in the kinds of jobs they're even remotely considered for. Yeah. So why, why couldn't he get her job? That, I mean, you know, yeah. there are there were some female coded professions, um, yeah. but most of those required an education. Yeah. Um, like, you know, like a teacher or something like that. Where, you know, but like the other ones, like if she could go out and start doing, I don't know, low level factory work, why <laughs> yes. couldn't he get the same job? Yeah. Uh, it didn't make any sense um, to me. And so I looked at the citations. 
It's like, what is she citing? I mean, uh, she tells a story about this happening in her own family. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that's interesting. You know, a story, but like, does this generally happen? Yeah, yeah. does like, it hold across the board? Yeah. Do I mean, is there evidence that women in this period or later periods that they go out to work when their husband lose, lose their jobs? Yeah. And she cites these papers. And one of them, uh, I, I'll just talk about it here. I won't go through all of them because she cites a number of them. But the one that is the most recent and the most sort of bizarre is this book called Spouse, or excuse me, it's um, a, a paper fu- from Jonathan Gruber and Julie Cullen, Jonathan Gruber of Obamacare fame, mm-hmm. for those who remember that whole thing. It's called Spousal Labor Supply as Insurance. Does unemployment insurance crowd out the added worker effect? So the added worker effect, that's the technical term for what she's referring to yeah. as the, the female uh, stay-at-home mom safety net. Sure. She can, you can just add that worker. Yeah. The man comes out, the woman, you know, you swap in, you, you, you yeah. sort of tag team, you touch hands and you, you know, now the woman's Tag-er working. Relate in, yeah. Um, and what's so funny about the paper is the paper starts off by saying, in theory... Women should go to work more when husbands are out of work. That's sort of in our standard theory of how people might behave. Um, But there has been, this is a quote, but there has been little empirical support for this contention. Oh, no. We, too, find little evidence of an added worker effect over the 1984 to 1993 period. And so what's interesting about this paper is the jumping off point of the paper is we've done a literature review and no one seems to be able to find (laughs) this effect. We also tried to find it and we couldn't find it, but we have a theory of why you can't find it, oh. right? Because the theory seems to say you should and then you don't, but why? Why don't you? What is the problem here? And the reason you don't, they say, is because unemployment insurance exists. Okay. We have a yeah. welfare benefit for people who lose their jobs and they oh. get checks in the mail no. and they show through you know these discontinuities and stuff that it appears that in fact unemployment insurance is the reason why women don't go and replace their husbands when they go to work. But yeah. unemployment insurance existed in the 70s. There's an it app existed, for that. It, it started in FDR's time. Yeah. And then the other weird thing about the study is they, f- they, they do these models where they're like, yeah. well, what would happen if you didn't have unemployment insurance? Like, let, we'll, we'll use, you know, we'll create these regressions and whatever, and we'll try to figure out how much would a stay-at-home mom work if this uh, unemployment insurance didn't exist? Yeah. What would it be like? And they find, uh, quote, our results show that unemployment insurance is crowding out some of the, you know, women going to work. Quote, although even in the absence of a UI system, the spousal response would only make up a small share of the associated reduction in family income. Mm. So they, they go, <laughs> they say, even if you got rid of all these unemployment benefits, yeah. We sh- we show in our model that women would go to work but they would replace only a tiny fraction of of the male earnings that have been lost. So it was a it would even it is a hypothetically shitty safety net. Yeah, it's a very very thin safety so net there. If, if it, it if even it occurred, at all. which it didn't occur because yeah. we have a welfare benefit for that purpose. Right. And and also the skill sets are not exactly swappable especially if you think in the 70s the no. mother who runs the household and cares for the kids and of then you have not. the dad come in who's not actually been practicing that kind of in-home labor when he's he's doing yeah. factory work yeah. or something like in general i mean we know i mean just the nature of what we understand about the gender wage gap would yeah. tell you that she can't go out and replace his earnings and that's going to be even worse the case in the 70s 
when you have got no work experience and yeah. the wage gap was even was even way massive yeah um so like that's like the big i would say one of the yeah. big premises of it was like uh the woman kind of acted like a spare tire you yeah, know yeah, on yeah. your car if one blew out you could swap, you her, could in, swap her in but that doesn't actually that doesn't appear to appear have, to have been, been the case. case um and also just when you look at it you're like no what that can't be true that's the only reason i mean i didn't <laughs> go and like look at all the footnotes of the things but when i saw claims where i was like really i would go click on the footnote and try to look at the stuff um and 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 so that's the first sort of discrete claim there that's the first one in the in the summary, in the summary. of the book and so then um, the next one that follows has to do with the kind of bidding wars right 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 so so then we get into the second bit which is okay yeah put aside the fact that okay women are not really a good like social insurance policy like stay-at-home mothers like activating them into the labor force is really not a good way mm -hmm. to deal with things like unemployment and disability right, right. and that sort of stuff um then there's the other claim that's just like okay they it basically goes like this they have more income sure but they also have to spend more than they used to have to spend okay okay and part of that makes sense and this would be the much more conventional line is you would say sending the second person to work mm -hmm. the effect of that of that dis that marginal decision the first worker has some costs you got to get uh, him a car mm -hmm. for instance you got to buy him some work clothes or whatever there's some costs associated with him going to work mm -hmm. then when you send the mom to work that second decision also has costs and those costs are actually way bigger yeah. than sending the first one to work not only do you also now have to get her a car but you have to get someone you have to pay someone to do all the things that she used to do yeah so daycare is the most obvious right right um, all the child care child related stuff Right. And so that would be the cl the clean, really easy move here is just to, to isolate those items yeah. and say, OK, what, what are the cost of those? But if you isolate only those items, the dual earner is still way ahead of yeah. the single earner. I, I, even if you, you know, focus on very narrow time periods, like the worst moment in a dual earner's life, which is the one we're about to uh, embark upon, yes. which is when you have two young kids who are, uh, you know, not in school uh, age yet. Yeah. Even if you focus on that narrow moment, they're better off than the single earner of 1970 if you only account those direct costs. Yeah. So instead, instead of uh, counting the direct costs of sending her into the workforce, she also starts positing these price effects. Right. Of other things going up. Yeah. Right. So the big one is real estate. Yeah. You know, once you I got two people earning money, mm -hmm. then the price effects are such that those homes that used to cost a hundred thousand, they now cost one fifty because people have more income chasing the same homes. Yeah. And you'd say, Well, that's weird. Can't you build more homes and that sort of thing? And Which we know did happen. Well, yes, and if you've got more people working, I mean, geez, why can't you get some of those new workers uh, uh building homes? Yeah. Um but she says, no, 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 it's not just the, the homes, it's the schools, it's the schools. That's yep, the real issues. Yep. It's not that people are buying homes, they're buying spots in public schools. And so there are scarce um, number of good public school seats, and it's those seats that are really being bid up through the proxy of real estate. This is not an uncommon 
view that, of course, real estate affects quote uh, uh, reflects quote unquote school quality. Um, it is more uh, a somewhat less common view to to assert that all of real estate run-ups has been because of uh, of school prices uh, or or because of people bidding up the price of these seats. You right. Know? Um, but I mean, more fundamentally, when when we switch from away from the fact that there are some direct costs, like you have to consume more in order to work more, yeah, which means buy daycare and buy the car. When we start getting into price effects, yeah, where it's like you're not consuming more, but the stuff you're consuming costs more, yeah, the price effects should show up in the inflation adjustment. So when we say hey, a dual earner these days makes, let me see if I can find the, the figure that, that she uses. A dual earner, in her like little example she comes up with, they make about 70000 Okay. And the single earner made a, le- a little less than 40000 And that's all a quote adjusted for inflation. Yeah. We can get to that in a little bit. There are some mistakes there, but mm-hmm. that's all adjusted for inflation. Well, the adjustment for inflation takes into account those price effects that's mm. all it does that's what it does oh, so the no. inflation adjustment should already reflect that yeah if the price of a of, of a square foot of housing has just run way the hell up yeah then the the income adjusted for inflation would not go up it, yeah. it, like if it's just being consumed in prices the, it would just stay flat as it is so there's a there's a confusion right off the bat unless you disagree with how inflation is being adjusted like the nature of it of of inflation adjustment is that we're saying how you know how much can the dollars buy right we're trying to get a parity between how what kind of purchasing power you have and so it should already reflect that the pr- the fact that home prices have gone up it should already yeah. reflect that and so this this sort of leads me back to the broader thing that uh, uh, on on this point that is really sort of not good for the kind of clarity that I like. Yeah, you know, I like to be very clear. Crisp. I like to have all my numbers. Let's get them in the spreadsheet. Let's get them clean. I do know that. And because the way how I many think cokes about this, would you say you drink in a day? You once asked me. Yes, yes, <laughs> and I have an inventory of the cokes as yeah, well. I know, um, I know that you do. And. So, you know, I mean, the way I approach this starting out when I'm like, I want to be clear on things. Mm-hmm. Let me be clear. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like, okay, what was GDP per capita in 1970? Okay. okay. That's a natural place to start. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and if we use 2010 prices. Yeah. Right. I'm adjusting for inflation here. I can see that. So I'm, this is like assuming the same basket of goods. Yeah. Yeah. Et cetera, yeah. Et cetera. In... 1970 GDP per capita was bear with me here Baron. I've clicked something uh, $23,000 okay so for every person man woman and child elderly etc all the people mm-hmm. 23 grand per person that's $2,010 if we go on to 1990 mm-hmm. year I was born excuse me 2000 damn uh, 44,000 okay so, you know, close to doubles. Yeah. So we have twice as much s- stuff, if you will, Yeah. to go around. Remember, we're adjusting for inflation. Mm-hmm. So don't be like, well, but it isn't some of that because the home price has gone up. No, we're no. adjusted for that. Already adjusted. 
factored in, baked into the cake. Okay. So you start with that and you say, that's the aggregate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you go, well, you know, so right off the bat, you go, well, if that was distributed evenly across society, then everyone would be quite a bit better off than they used to be in this material sense. Yeah. Maybe not in their soul or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in this material sense. Mm-hmm. And. So therefore, the only reason why the middle class or lower class would be in a worse position than they used to be in is because you're not distributing this extra income well. Maybe you're distributing it all to the top. Right. So I could imagine a situation where it's like, well, the middle class, they have two earners now, but they're really, their material conditions are not significantly better. Even though national income has gone up a lot. And it's like, well, I could see that. You know why that would be? It's because the rich have all the money. Yeah. Not because two of you are working. (laughs) Right. Obviously, two people working has created more stuff, has been more productive. We have more things to distribute to people. If you're not getting more of it, you need to look upwards because that's where it is. You need to go get those guys, not reflect on your decision to have have two two incomes. I mean it's just really baffling in that sense. Um, and so, so then the next part of the equation has to do with all of these new costs that just have to do from having former caregivers enter the labor market. Right. Right. Well, Daycare. That, those are the direct costs. Right. Those are the ones that make that you would normally make in a, a normal kind of argument about this. Yeah. She goes beyond that and, t- and starts attributing price effects. Yeah. Like, well, the run up in housing prices, that's because there were two earners. And she also brings up health care costs. Health care costs. The run up in health care costs. Right. The run up in health care costs. The run up in college costs because there's two right. earners. But, but it's like, these, no, like, these, no, that's just wrong. <laughs> but and also, if someone, if one of those two earners happens to uh, live, happens to be employed at a college, they're actually winning from the fact that college costs more. <laughs> well, or in uh, yeah. the health sector, they're health actually sector. winning because they're a doctor or whatever. So it's like someone gets the money. Like yeah. if more stuff's being produced, someone is getting the money. I, I believe you that there might be some people who are, but someone's getting it. So you, you what you have is a distributive problem. And, and it, honestly, those programs that are becoming popular now on the left happen to address those very things. Well, yes. Free pre-K, universal health care, universal public tuition, and that, that has a distribution effect. Yes, yes, yes. So so th- this sort of brings me, I guess, to the one of the parts that's so irritating a little bit about reading this as someone who is yeah. very, very welfare-minded, very, very, I, uh, you know, I've done so much work on family benefits. I'm going to have a paper out soon called the Family Fun Pack. It's being designed right now. Love uh, that fun fact. The family fun fact, in in, in in a sort of unintentional way, is very much in some ways a response to the two-income trap because it's like, no, this is how you really need to think about it. Um, because what she what she what she's really noting here, if you kind of move off a lot of the fuzziness, some of the numbers not making sense, some of the yeah. citations not making sense, what she acknowledges at the very get-go is that the this is a quote from the book, I think. The single best predictor that a woman will end up in financial collapse is having children. That's what she's recognizing. Right. Yeah. It's not two incomes. Right. It's not one incomes. It is the cost of having a child. Because, and this is this becomes especially clear when she does. So the big thing that 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 she's that the big number yeah. that they were using in a lot of the publicity and PR, and if you read some of the reviews from way back, that's really supposed to like grab you and shock you. 
mm-hmm. is she computes that discretionary income, which is defined as sort of like income after you've paid childcare and housing and healthcare and that kind of stuff, sort of, mm-hmm. you know, fixed big costs, you know, money that you've got left over, you buy your food and clothing and save out of or whatever, that that despite the fact that we have two earners and despite the fact that two earners are making way more than one earners used to discretionary income is lower for mm-hmm. the two earner family in 2000 than the one earner family in 1970 in absolute dollars. It's lower. Yeah. And one, that's not true. She used the wrong inflation index, mm-hmm. but two, and more importantly, that comparison where she compares a dual earner family in 2000 to the one earner family in 1970. Yeah. That comparison is done. For a family that has two children of daycare age. Yeah. And it's like, that is, that should tell you something. Yes. Because the two children of daycare age, what she finds is that the 1970s family, they have about $17,800 of discretionary income. Right. And for the two earner family in 2000, it's 17000 like 45. So it's like $800 less. Even though they're making way more and the economy's way more sure, productive, yeah. eight hundred less discretionary income, mm-hmm. but not over uh, uh, right around ten thousand dollars of their fixed costs is daycare bills. Yeah, so well, we can certainly identify with that. That it's the daycare. The daycare is a whole. If you get rid of the daycare, their discretionary income is ten thousand dollars higher. Yeah, than it was. In, in 1970. So you take this booming double earner economy and you just change the distribution a little yes. bit and you or, fix the problem. Or in this narrow case, right? Because what you're finding yeah. here is those people in the, in the example she uses, the ones that have the two kids of daycare age, those kids are not going to be of daycare age in a few years. She is picking a family who's right at that pain point. Right. And being like, look, that family actually has slightly less discretionary income. Yeah. But what about that family every other year of their life cycle. Yeah. Like there's three years maybe in which they have lower discretionary income and they don't even have that because she's done an, she's used the wrong inflation index in this statistic. But for three years they have less. And then for 40 years, for the remaining 37 years of their uh, working life. Yeah. They have $10,000 more. So that's uh, 370 grand more (laughs) extra income. Yeah. For those 37 years, yeah. minus, I guess, 3,000 for the, the bad years. So yeah. that's a net win of 367,000 across your life cycle. But on those special years where you got two kids of daycare age, you're actually a little bit worse off. And it's that period where she pu- where she pinpoints all the bankruptcy, all the right. financial and difficulty. It's like, don't you see? The problem here is that the way that we distribute income across the life cycle is wrecking families who have these very high punctuated costs, right. especially with young children. It is the timing of the income that creates this really weird anomalous statistic that you have found in this very sort of focused moment in someone's life. And so the answer to that would never be if you're trying to max income, and maybe you're not, right? I'm, I know other no. people have other reasons for wanting to do one earner sure, and that sure, sort of sure. thing. But if you're trying to max income, the answer would not be, well, we should have had a one earner. The answer would be, we should redistribute the income so that instead of it, you know, instead of having really high incomes when, for instance, you're an empty nester or yeah. when your kids are in middle school, you have 
you know, fairly similar incomes across your life cycle. Because mm-hmm. when, for instance, you have young kids, child care is free. Yeah. But you'll pay higher taxes in the other years. And it'll all smooth out. Right. And then, but, and then if you add it up across the life cycle, you're hundreds of thousands of dollars ahead of where you used to be. Yeah. And so at that to me, it's just, I, I, I wouldn't say it's dishonest, but it's just, it's really, really deceptive and misleading to someone who reads it. Yeah. Like the way you would do this if you're being serious is you would say, how much money, how much extra income do they have across their whole life? Right. And you'd go, and wow, it's a lot more. And then someone would go, yeah, but did you notice that when they're like 28 and 29, they actually have less? Yeah. You'd be like, yeah, oh shit, yeah, yeah, that sucks. I get what we need to do is we need to move more of the income down to when they're 27 and 28, take some away when they're older. So, you know, up the tax level. Yeah. Increase child benefits. Yeah. Smooth it out across their life cycle. The welfare state, come on. Yeah, I mean, it's right there. And then I... So, I mean, the, the, the thing that she's going to get pinged for, I think, in making this... And there's other stuff in there about school vouchers. Well, yes. So, so when it comes to solutions, right, she does, uh, she, she does endorse the idea of free pre-K. Yeah, which um, is good. Yeah. She sort of endorses... She, she kind of makes a weird flip-flop on childcare, the, like, yeah. before pre-K. She, she, on the one hand, makes this argument that, like, well, wait a minute, wouldn't this hurt stay-at-home mothers who won't receive the child care benefit? And I think some people have made some hay on that. But if you actually read it in context, she does make that point. But yeah. then she says, but maybe we could do something for the stay-at-home mothers. And it's like, well, yes, yeah, she would give them a benefit as well, such as a home child care allowance, which is in the family fund pack. Right. So I don't know that she actually comes out against public daycare. She just says that we also need to make sure people who care for children in the home get some kind of benefit too so that they're not you know relatively disadvantaged by that system okay fair enough Um, but yeah so so she says school vouchers so so remember one of the big problems which i think is misguided in in the way that she thinks about it analytically is she says the reason why these people they have more income but they they don't they're they're not better off they don't you know they're not more secure is that they're having to spend way more money on on real estate because they're bidding against one another for these scarce seats in schools yeah and so naturally you're like okay so what can we do about that um and she she uses the word vouchers, which I think is actually a bit of a is an unfortunate mistake, because what I'd say she's actually advocating is not vouchers in the traditional sense. Um, she's advocating a notion of school choice among public schools. Yeah. So she's very clear about this. She's not like you should have a voucher so that you can go to parochial school or so that you can go to private school or whatever, but is instead saying you should have the ability, like if you live in D.C., to apply to all the D.C. public schools, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, 40 elementary schools or something, and you, you should be able to go to any one of them. Right. And there would be some lottery or application process or whatever. And in that way, you de-link school admission to living in a certain place, yeah. which means then that school value can't get capitalized into real estate prices okay. or whatever um i don't really have a strong opinion on that I, I um but it is not quite a voucher 
system. Not, I would yeah, say. not in the, the sense um, it's commonly understood. It, it does. Well, actually, I do have a little bit of it because because it, it does seem to miss a little bit about like what's going on. Because like when I looked at it, I was I was waiting for her to show that like, uh, well, um, you know, the schools have gotten worse. She writes a lot about how people perceive. They're afraid yeah. of crime in schools and they're afraid of sure. blah, blah, blah. And you're like, well, okay, well, but has crime, has crime gotten worse? I mean, mm-hmm. were they not afraid that of crime in schools in the 70s? Wasn't that like a pretty v- relatively violent time to where we are now? She's like, yeah, you know, violence has gone down a lot. And it's like, well, weren't they afraid of bad schools in the 70s? Like, has, have they the were sc- very woke at that time. Have the schools gotten worse? Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, they do. I mean, in fact, more people are graduating from high school than ever. More people are graduating from college than ever. Uh, test scores are higher than ever. Um, you know, it all it all goes up. And so part of it is like, I don't know, I feel like maybe you're missing a little bit here. Like maybe the reason people are, to the extent that they are involved in these kinds of bidding wars, it's like, because they they want to be around other affluent people or you know they they they're like want to do racial segregation or you know like de facto like i feel like she's missing some of that yeah and and i I mean i felt like what people were going to hit her for and what tucker carlson certainly came after her for is there's certainly a reading of this which is you know uh gender revanchist you might say you know someone could look at this you know in a cursory way and say all right so she's just saying women should go home uh yeah, I mean she doesn't say that. But that's, that's not the not argument ultimately. It's, it's you know um, it's about a change in in the economy. Yeah. So her solution to that is so her solution to like the run up in real estate prices is to delink schools from the real estate, and then her solution yeah. to the run up in college prices is just a is just a tuition freeze. Is like to just cap the amount of tuition you can charge, and then yeah. basically tell schools to deal with it. And um, make schools make the tough choices of, you know, what they're going to cut and that sort of thing. Um, So, you know, that seemed all right, I guess. But then I guess, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't really care. I Like I said, I feel like the whole premise of the thing is way off. Um, So I, I feel a little bit hard trying to think about that. But the part that is a little bit easier for me to address that I, that is more um, irritating, I guess, was, you know, as we were talking before, she had this notion of uh, the mother as a safety net. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The single mother was a safety net. She she was kind of providing a, a sort of unemployment insurance. Yeah. And disability insurance. Right. And sickness insurance and that sort of thing. And one that doesn't seem to have been that true or significant. They couldn't replace much earnings. Right, and, yeah. You know we had unemployment insurance back in the day. Um, but two, you go, okay, so what do you want to do about that? Right. You've got, we've, we already know what you want to do about the school prices. What do you want to do about the fact that we don't have a stay at home mom to provide this social insurance anymore? Right. Um, which you said she used to provide. Yeah. And the answer to this actually, I think is very, uh, uh disturbing um she what she notes is that in our current system mm-hmm. you know we have over time created this sort of a uh, what i what i would call welfare accounts yeah type system for 
middle income families sure. and upper income families. And what I mean by welfare accounts, if we we've created this system where you're expected to save up for welfare for things that a welfare state would typically provide, right? A good one, like a social democratic one, you're expected to save up for those in very specific accounts that relate to those things right a bunch of separate uh, little pots of money right? right and they're tax advantaged and yeah. you don't you know you don't pay capital income tax on them and that sort of thing like that's the idea so for instance uh we have uh, retirement accounts yeah you put money in your retirement accounts we have uh college savings accounts you put the money in the college savings accounts those accounts can now also be used for private school to some degree. Yeah. We have a dependent care flexible spending account, which is not, which is a little bit different, but is in the same, I would say, you know, wheelhouse. We have health savings accounts. Mm. We, I mean, we could go yeah, on yeah, and on. Yeah. Everything that you would typically provide that you would do in a normal welfare state, which is like old age, disability, sickness, education, etc. We have a tax advantaged account for it. Yeah. And you're supposed to like put money in it. And like really it's mostly like a tax shelter for affluent people at this point when you look at the facts of how they're used. Um, but that's sort of like the way the system is set up. And she says, uh, she, <laughs> her objection to this is that the accounts are too narrow. Yeah. Like, okay. well, how much money should I put in my health account versus my college account versus my retirement account? And like, this is very complicated. And that's true. Fair question. That is very complicated. But then she's like, basically, she says, well, why don't we just have one welfare account? Just like a big, just like one, and you could use it for, account. you know, like whatever. Um, so it would just sort of be like a individual savings account or something. Yeah, I would call it the save yourself account. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the UK has proposed this from time to time, but it's, but it, yeah, it's like, all right, we won't have specific uses, but yeah. we will for, you know, every year you can put $10,000 into it and then it's that like can be tax advantaged. Personal for, rainy day fund. Yeah. yeah uh, and then you could take it out or something and, um, you know, that's sort of the approach, um, but what's weird is, uh, um, well, you know, like, that's really not a good approach at all. Well, that's one man's view. Like, if you, like, just provide the benefits for people so they don't have to manage it at all. Like, just say, okay, if you get unemployed, we as a society yeah. are going to take care of that for you. If you get sick, you're going to have health care. If you get disabled, you're going to have disability benefits. When you go to pre-k or college you're going to be covered there whether yeah. through grants or some loans or like like the, the system's yeah. going to manage that for you you don't want to double down on the idea that people need to be building their own welfare chests which also means that you create these savings instruments that allow affluent people to shelter shelter themselves from capital taxation right um so that's a really bad and i think yeah. people have really turned on that um yeah. you know the, i don't think she would endorse that idea anymore um we'll just have to see how the how the discussion you know if it comes up if anyone actually takes the time i mean and they will uh to go through this and then and then run these ideas by her again i think that'll represent you know a kind of significant moment in the development of her candidacy um because the left has changed 
you yes. know, even since even since the release of the new edition in 2016, the left has really coalesced around some ideas uh, more than others. And, you know, Medicare for all being the sort of major one right now to deal with these health expenses. Right. Like um, there is a part in, in, uh, in the later parts of the book where she's like she's like calculating the percent likelihood of someone losing their health insurance yeah. if they're two earner now versus one earner in the past. Yeah. And I remember reading that and being like, this is like in the left world now, this is totally moot. There's right. no, there's in our world, you would never ever, no one would ever lose their health insurance ever. Right. Right. So like if that would become totally irrelevant, it's uh, just not even like, it, it, right. And, and so, you know, and, and you might point out sort of, uh, worryingly, uh, she hasn't really been spending a lot of time on M4A on the trail so far. Um, and, and when questioned about, you know, why aren't you spending time on that? Uh, she's just said, well, I'm just focused on other things. And that's caused a little bit of nervousness in some quarters of the left who think, well, this is going to take a lot of political capital and energy to fight for. So if it's something you're kind of trying to shy away from already, uh, that's not a super great sign. But uh, I think that the read through of this will be, you know, therefore enlightening. And uh, and the other thing that I would add um, is, you know, in in terms of like the moral and personal and philosophical impacts of like moving to a two income uh, uh, way of life, you know, that's just part of a longer transition that happened under capitalism moving people out of the home and away from the family and into a certain type of labor market as it's organized now, you know, kind of moving away from the agrarian, uh, working with the family all day uh, style of labor to the kind of labor market we have now, the sort of great transformation. Yeah. And so like the way that I think most people, you know, most socialists, or at least when you look at countries and, you know, socialist countries talk about that is, trying to diminish labor hours overall. Right. I mean that that that, know, that, for, that would for have men been and women. that would have been the sort of question in in some ways of okay, let let's say we run the clock back to 1950 or whatever. We've reached the point where for technological and social and cultural and industrial reasons we we're not comfortable with this sort of male breadwinner, female stay-at-home kind of thing. And so, you know, you could accomplish, you could fix that through two paths. One would be to say, okay, well, why don't we just, uh, why don't we just have two part-time workers? Yeah. Or you could say, well, we should have two full-time workers. Like, so one is to basically (laughs) keep hours worked overall the same, but just redistribute some of them from men to woman. And then of course to have men, take up some of the hours in the home yeah so you would just re uh, total labor hours would not go up domestic plus uh, market hours would be the same but they would be shifted yeah across the the two genders um the other way is just no just just add a shitload of hours and that's the path that was taken and I don't like working. I I think we should yeah. be reducing it a lot, and so I think that was a a a very severe mistake in in yeah. hindsight that it w- was under theorized perhaps at the time it was that a bad turn. we really should not be trying to increase total hours, and so if we want to change the composition of who's working, we need to we need to be very careful to make sure we don't get in the moment 
the situation where we are now where people work way more. If you add up yeah. total hours, you add up hours worked at home plus yeah. hours worked outside of home way more right. than used to. And like that sucks. That is the real That's two the income real trap. trap right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's just your 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 time on the on this earth, your yeah. idle time, your time with uh, friends and family that you can you do it's just getting sucked away from you. Yeah. Um just eaten by work. And that's a real big mistake. But in other countries, they they did have very large reductions in work. Yeah, and France yeah. just compl- I mean, Jesus Christ, they've, it. they've cut like twenty five percent of their work hours in the last like like thirty forty years. There's something really admirable in that. And and in a lot of the you know happiness surveys where you see women scoring really high, it turns out to be there in countries where the work hours are just not so high. Yeah, just being uh, able to yeah you know to be part time if you want or. Uh, or or to just have a, a lighter work week overall seems to make a big difference. And so, you know, that's where I would say, um, you know, I'd like to see a little bit more focus if you're going to look at how this transition to the kind of economy we have now has affected families. Yeah, I think, and that one's a much easier mechanical kind of thing. I do think the, the point about, uh, you know, in some cases, they're the they're the added costs, the direct costs of going to work. You know, like that 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 probably didn't make sense in some situations. Um, though that you know is one of those things where it's like, yeah, but those are in, in kind of marginal cases. And yeah. Overall, certainly it did increase output and and that sort of thing. But but if you just count hours, right? It's like. Yeah, you don't get out, out. You cannot grow the pie of of hours. There's only yeah. 24 of them in a day, and if you start gobbling more and more of them up, you know, yeah, that's a very negative situation. And we might it might even make more some some sense in a way to reassess hours worked in light of the new kind of I don't know the kind of options the leisure options we now have. Because it seemed like part of the push in the mid-century was like people were bored. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. I could stay m- pretty entertained most of the time these days. Uh, I've got lots of things I can do, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I think hours worked is a big one. And we got a, we got a paper coming up on hours reduction as well at PPP is in the works. So we're on top of it all. You know, I've got the family fun pack which is the welfare state solution to the real problem here, which is that children come with very, very high punctuated costs at a very young age for the parents, which creates all sorts of havoc, all these bankruptcies recording, I would say is a function of that, is the fact that children are very expensive and our system does not take care of that. Um, And then in terms of solving the real two-income trap problem, which is that people are now trapped into spending more and more of their time working and less and less of their time on personal projects and family and that sort of thing, we've got work reduction. So we got it all. We got it all covered at PPP. So we got it all covered at PPP. That is the uh, the PPP read and the Brunig's read on... uh on uh, the two income trap. Yeah, what are your thoughts? I know I I, I actually I, I actually read uh, you know yeah. so I, I feel like I was a little uh, spoke more than than you did. But, oh no uh, no no! <laughs> I mean I think that sounds about right. Uh, I like to I'd like to hear what the listeners think. You know, sound off in the comments. Yeah, we should do like some of the other podcasts and 
create a answering machine yeah so people yeah. can uh oh my god i can only imagine <laughs> wouldn't that be horrible oh i guess it would be easier if we asked for like text questions but, uh, I, but I think people like the answering machine because it's it, like it's you know you get to hear yeah, them and whatnot it, so. it's undoubtedly a venue for comedy but maybe many other things as well so. yeah i'd have to <laughs> I, it might be a you try it once and then you half of them are abusive and you're like it's like an art installation piece yeah <laughs> Uh, so oh, let I us wouldn't. know. Let us know what you think. Uh, we're open to reading more uh, texts and doing uh, close looks at pieces that campaign uh, that candidates have written as the campaign progresses. Yeah, but it's got to be. I don't want to read about an. Uh, no, we're not going to read that shit. I, like, I'm got, interested in a be policy focused or thing. making some kind of argument. She did apparently write another book on personal finance, um, and I was funny. I was reading it because this is a callback to one of our other episodes, and it, in the like. PR stuff for it, you know, yeah. like they're trying to promote it. She was, um, she was described as uh, Dr. Phil's financial expert. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I, I had no idea of the connection. We love Dr. Phil on this show because we do love Dr. He Phil. is a hustler of the highest proportion. Uh, the Jerry Springer. Shameless. The, yes, absolutely shameless, but somehow pulls it off. Yeah. Somehow pulls it off. Like like Elizabeth Warren would not go on Jerry Springer to give financial advice, but she will go on Dr. Phil, who to my mind is just Jerry Springer. Yeah. Um, with more polish or whatnot. How's that working uh, for you? <laughs> but that then suggests, having read that, that there must be clips of Dr. Phil and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Which I mean, I would just I'm I'm interested to see if there's any gold in that because, you know, Dr. Phil is such a such a train wreck. In other uh, words, link us, fam. <laughs> this is a shout out for a link. Apparently, her personal planning book, her personal finance book is is, is largely touted as like really good. And like, you know, yeah, I can imagine. Thing. So, yeah, you know. she seems like she'd have a handle on that. Yeah, I mean, this book was was fine in parts. I think it just it suffered from, you know, it ne- you, 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 you want to go. You need welfare state. You, you gotta need, have the welfare state. It. You gotta look a little bit beyond the U.S. This is a thing I I think people really make a mistake in the welfare state. Sometimes people come up to me, you know, on the street here in D.C. Do they? And they say, Matt, you're so clear on the welfare state. You have such a good sense of what you're trying to do here. How do you accomplish that? Yeah. How did you do that? What do you say? And I say, look, man, you gotta look at other countries. If you stay inside the U.S., your brain is just rotted because the whole U.S. welfare discourse is a fucking train wreck. You got to go into other countries where they haven't had all the baggage we've had and have been able to construct rational systems that make sense and have, therefore, reasonable frameworks for how to think about these things. That's how you get clear on it. And I, so in that sense, I sympathize with Warren in writing the book because if you're only living in the U.S. and only thinking about the U.S., yeah. oh, my God, it's like, you know, it's, I don't know, it's like trying to, uh, you know, I don't know, like tr- trying to invent a new product in, you know, a, a padded room or something. It's like, what, how do I have no material to work with? What am I supposed to even, you know, how am I even supposed to construct this? Um, so the material that's available in the U.S. policy discourse around welfare, around income distribution, around ownership, ar- around those kinds of things is horrible, toxic, full of morons. Even in sort of the center left, to be frank. So you got to go abroad if you want to get that Apple Store brain, as you've described it, about the welfare state. And if you don't, you wind up in this weird shit where you're like, maybe it's because women are working now. And like, ooh, you want to avoid that. You want to avoid that, I think. Yep. All right. 
Tune in next time for another regular episode of The Brunigs. All right. Bye.